0: This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners.
3: As far as I'm concerned, Charles Smith was an aberration, like a tornado.
0: He wasn't
4: trained. He had no idea what he was doing as a forensic pathologist.
2: For 20 years, Charles Smith was a high-profile pathologist who led major investigations into child deaths in Ontario. But by the late 90s, people were starting to question his abilities. Sloppy work, late reports. He was even known for losing key pieces of evidence.
3: We went to a neuropathologist, and this guy knew Smith and did not like Smith. He knew he was a charlatan.
2: Maurice Gagnon and his wife Angie blew through more than $100,000 defending their daughter Leanne when Charles Smith accused her of a heinous crime. Smith was convinced Leanne had murdered her infant son, Nicholas.
5: So they were accusing me of having suffocated him.
2: Smith and his bosses stood by his theories even when faced with evidence from experts that proved otherwise. It was all part of a harrowing pattern of parents being accused of murdering their children under a new directive from the Ontario Chief Coroner's Office. Think dirty.
3: Think dirty. In other words, every case is on a homicide unless you can show that it's not. They were bragging that they identified more pediatric killings than the rest of Canada put together. Well, sure they did, because none of them were right.
4: Charles Smith came into my life when I read Jenna's autopsy report.
2: Brenda Wadby was a single mother of two young girls when her 21-month-old daughter, Jenna, was beaten to death while in the care of a babysitter.
4: I was beginning to feel very suspicious of what the police were looking at. They, it felt as though they were examining me and me alone. They were treating me more as I was a perpetrator.
2: Tina Pitaway brings us the story of how these two cases were crucial in helping expose a coroner's office that was out of control and helped end a catastrophic chapter in Ontario's justice system, in the conclusion of Think Dirty, the disgrace of Dr. Charles Smith.
3: Smith chose his victims.
2: I can't even
4: refer to him like a an doctor anymore.
2: Incompetent, arrogant, thinking dirty.
1: In the spring of 1999, Leanne Tebow and her husband Pete were at long last out from under the threat of having their daughter Nicole taken from them. Leanne's parents, Morris and Angie, were breathing easier as well. But the family was still reeling from the stress of everything that had happened in the aftermath of Nicholas's death. Morris was determined to find a way to hold Dr. Charles Smith and his enablers responsible for the chaos they had wrought upon his family. Morris's job was the perfect training ground for the task.
3: I was uh, management with the Ontario Public Service, uh, senior management, and I was regional manager here in the north. So I knew what the system was, and i have been playing in the system for 25 years.
1: Morris knew his way around the bureaucracy. He knew how to move a complaint through government in order to make people in power uncomfortable.
3: And you start at the bottom and you work your way up. Most people just go right to the top, they go to the minister or something like this. And there's just dies there. But if you go from the bottom up and you get the no answer from the, from the first guy and the second guy, you can always tell the next one, that, well, I went to him and he said, no, no, oh, I'm talking to you. And then you go all the way up. Once you reach the top and nothing happens there, then the next step is you go public. They don't like public.
1: With the case against Leanne dropped by Children's Aid in March of 1999, Morris and Burke Keeney, the lawyer hired to defend Leanne, concentrated their efforts on exposing Smith's incompetence and the systemic failures that enabled him. No other family should have to endure what they had. Keeney had heard that a crew from CBC Television's investigative series The Fifth Estate was in Sudbury and he contacted one of the producers. In November, Diagnosis Murder aired. It was an expose of Smith's shoddy work in Leanne's case, as well as another case Smith was involved in more than a decade earlier, in the late 80s. Bert Keeney and Maurice Gagnon had stumbled across the case in the years they'd spent digging into Smith's record. It had eerie similarities to Leanne's story, and the judge in the case had issued a scathing assessment of Charles Smith's role in its investigation. Samantha McIntosh was a straight-A grade 7 student from Timmins, Ontario.
3: Yeah, she was only 12.
1: In the summer of 1988, Samantha had just completed a three-month babysitting course when neighbours hired her to look after their 16-month-old daughter, Amber. The case is still under a publication ban, so the names of those involved have been changed. On July 28, 1988, Amber tripped and fell head-first down five stairs. She was flown to Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto, where she died two days later. The first coroner determined the cause of death was accidental head injury. But doctors at SickKids were suspicious as to how a tumble down five stairs could result in the kinds of injuries Amber suffered. They suspected she was a victim of shaken baby syndrome. Charles Smith had been at Sick Kids for seven years at this point, working as a pediatric pathologist. But as Morris Gagnon and Bert Keeney discovered, he had no training or certification in forensic pathology, a shocking deficit in a skill set needed when dealing with the kinds of cases he oversaw.
3: He got his degree from Saskatchewan, and that tells me that he could not get into uh, an Ontario or Quebec university. He had to go to a small university in Saskatchewan, and he came back with the most basic degree in pathology. And now, then he was, now he's trying to tell, tell the world that he was a forensic pathologist, he was a pediatric pathologist, a neuropathologist. The man had no qualifications whatsoever.
1: Smith ordered an exhumation, and his autopsy determined the girl had died from shaken baby syndrome. Smith made mistakes throughout every stage of the autopsy, including disregarding a large bruise on Amber's forehead, wrongly claiming it predated her fall. He also downplayed a very large blood clot that was removed from Amber's brain while she was still alive, something that's very unusual in cases of shaken baby syndrome. Timmons police arrested 12-year-old Samantha and charged her with manslaughter. Samantha's father, Dave, was a chemist at a mining company, and over the next two years, he would put his scientific skills to use in proving his daughter's innocence. Every spare weekend and evening, Dave spent poring through scientific journals, reading studies about the biomechanics of falls, neuropathology, and the swirling debate around whether shaken baby syndrome was even a real syndrome at all, or one that could cause the death of a baby Amber's size.
3: And uh, he had to sell his house, use all his retirement savings, everything else, to clear his daughter's name.
1: Samantha's parents remortgaged their house twice until eventually selling it to fund her defense. The family wound up moving into the basement of the lawyer who represented them. They cashed in all of their RSPs. In the end, more than $150,000 was spent finding 19 experts from around the world whose research supported Samantha's innocence. The MacIntoshes would fly nine of them to Timmins to testify in a trial that spanned 13 months. Ultimately, it bankrupted them, but it paid off in the acquittal of their daughter. In his ruling, the judge in the case, Judge Patrick Dunn, singled out Smith's errors with physical evidence, as well as his closed-mindedness. This was a pattern that would repeat itself year after year with Smith's work. That of Smith arriving at the outset of an autopsy with a fixed idea of what had happened, then tailoring as much as he could to fit that theory. Smith thought that was what the role of a pathologist was to find evidence that supported theories for police services or the Crown rather than letting the evidence stand on its own. It was an astounding misunderstanding of autopsies, and Justice Dunn eviscerated Smith's conclusions in his ruling. After Samantha McIntosh was acquitted, her father complained to the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario in 1991 where it was essentially ignored for years and years as Smith's star steadily rose. Smith did respond to Dave McIntosh's complaint, however, in a three-page letter where he said he remained as convinced as ever that Amber's death was not an accident. He went so far as to claim in his letter of defense to the College of Physicians that Justice Dunn had confided in him that he believed Samantha McIntosh was in fact guilty.
3: Plus Smith lied he said that he had sat in a plane with Dunn, and Dunn had said that, yeah, that she was guilty, and, oh, and Dunn said, I never talked to this guy. Never even talked to Smith once. He was a total liar.
1: Maurice Gagnon was disgusted to learn that Charles Smith's failings were on full display nearly 10 years earlier, and that he had continued not just to work, but be promoted and have such sway on complex cases. Cases like Leanne's, as well as that of Brenda Wadby, a mother of two young girls from Peterborough, Ontario.
4: Charles Smith came into my life when I read Jenna's autopsy report. I seen who it was written by.
1: In September of 1997, Brenda was wrongly charged with second-degree murder following the death of her 21-month-old daughter, Jenna Meller.
4: And he was an uneducated, anatomical pathologist. He wasn't trained. He had no idea what he was doing as a forensic pathologist. He, he gave the police what he wanted, what the police wanted, what the Crown wanted. You want this? I'll tailor it a bit.
1: The case against Brenda was again built upon Charles Smith's bumbling theories, but it was different from the other child deaths Smith investigated. Whereas Leanne Tebow and Samantha McIntosh were accused of murders that had never happened, Jenna was badly beaten, suffering head injuries, internal injuries, sexual assault, and fractured ribs. The night that Jenna died, Brenda had left her and her other daughter, Justine, in the care of a 14-year-old babysitter named J.D., who lived upstairs from them with his siblings and mother.
4: It was a duplex, I guess you could call it a duplex. There was a main level and then a basement apartment. I was in the basement, and the um, babysitter's mom lived upstairs.
1: JD, whose real name can't be used because of a publication ban, had babysat for Brenda since she and her girls had moved in a few months earlier, after Brenda got out of a violent relationship with Jenna's father. Children's aid in Peterborough was involved in Brenda's life because of prior drug abuse. But Brenda was doing well in treatment and attending Narcotics Anonymous meetings regularly.
4: I went to NA three times a week, every week. It was a place where I felt I could go to get help and talk to people that understood what you were going through.
1: On the night that Jenna died, Brenda had asked JD to watch the girls while she met up with her NA sponsor and a friend. She left the house around 5 p.m. When she got home, about eight hours later, Police were there. An ambulance had taken Jenna to hospital shortly before Brenda arrived back at the house.
4: Jenna died on a Tuesday. And from the Sunday prior, she just acted odd. She would, somebody would knock on the door, she'd run to me and sob. And it was just fearful. And that's the only way I can explain it. She was afraid of anybody coming in the house that didn't belong. Um, I couldn't understand
1: it. In the days leading up to Jenna's murder, Brenda had noticed tiny abrasions as well as two strange bruises. One bruise was on Jenna's back, and the other one, on the inside of her thigh, resembled a handprint. JD had babysat the Friday and Saturday nights prior to her death. Brenda asked Susan, JD's mother, about the bruising, but nothing came of it. After Jenna's death, Brenda and J.D. both became suspects. Jenna's body was transferred to SickKids Hospital in Toronto, where Charles Smith conducted her autopsy. Jenna had more than 100 bruises on her body, at least 13 fractured ribs, and she died as a result of blunt force trauma to her abdomen. Those facts are undisputed, but Smith made a crucial, inexplicable error in his autopsy. Hospital staff in Peterborough had noted signs of possible sexual assault when Jenna was brought in, including signs on Jenna's genitals, as well as noting a possible pubic hair embedded in her vulva. But Smith, during the autopsy, did nothing more than a simple external examination of Jenna's genital area. He removed the hair from Jenna's body, but he didn't point out its existence to the police photographer documenting the autopsy nor did he at any stage in the investigation pass it along to police. Instead, he kept it in an envelope in his office. Key to the investigation was determining the window of time that the injuries could have occurred. If the injuries happened prior to Brenda leaving for the evening, she would be the most likely suspect. If they occurred after Brenda left for the evening, JD would be the likely suspect. Pinpointing times of injuries are often difficult and requires forensic training and expertise, which Smith never received nor attained. At one point, Smith gave four different answers in regards to possible timing of the injuries, but he encouraged police to focus on Jenna's behavior the last day she was alive. He had a theory that Jenna could have been beaten by her mother in the 24 or so hours before her death. Almost immediately, police focused on Brenda as their prime suspect. She was questioned within hours of Jenna's death, as was J.D., and there were follow-up interviews in the coming days.
4: And then by the third, fourth day, it was more apparent that they were looking at me more than the babysitter. I was beginning to feel very suspicious of what the police were looking at. it, It felt as though they were examining me and me alone. They were treating me more as I was a perpetrator. It was the line of questioning. It was, I had to account for 24 hours prior to her death and what had happened, which not many people can do that and recall every minute of their day. So it was difficult, but I, the only thing I missed telling them was I had been up in the night, Um, it was 2.30 in the morning, to change her diaper. And when I told the police that the next day a letter had been written in regards to that, that somebody had witnessed that I had beaten her in the middle of the night.
1: No one has ever been identified in regards to that letter accusing Brenda of beating Jenna. But it played a key role in what would turn into an eight-month-long investigation of her that resulted in her being charged with second-degree murder as well as child abuse. J.D., it seems, was never taken seriously as a suspect.
4: One officer kind of said, believed what he had told him that night. So he was, you know, he was kind of cleared that night he was happy with what he had told them and wanted the, the things that had taken place.
1: In order to gather evidence against Brenda, police infiltrated her Narcotics Anonymous meetings.
4: Maya Schlegel, Constable Maya Schlegel from the Police Department. She introduced herself to me as a heroin addict and her name was Ramona Spiegel. I had no reason not to believe her and we became quick friends because I was feeling so alone so isolated at the time and it was nice that somebody you know I could talk to or I thought I could talk to that I could relate to that
1: was not judgmental Constable Schlegel fostered a friendship with Brenda with the intent of eliciting a confession of some sort from her
4: I had never taken anybody to Jenna's grave that was a very private place for me. I went there every day in the beginning. And finally I took Ramona to it. And as I sat there she started to say things like Are you sure you remember? Do you remember everything? Are you sure you remember everything? And even her saying that that's not that seated out. So you start thinking. Well, did I? Maybe. Do I remember everything? Am I thinking right? Like, do I remember everything? I'm pretty sure I know everything. But you'd start to doubt yourself. And that had a huge impact down the line. It it created a lot of seed of doubt in myself. The day I was arrested. September 18th, 1997. It was... I don't even know how to explain how I felt at that time. It was horrifying. I couldn't believe that that was happening at that time. I did a statement and I told the officers everything I knew. They uh, put me back in the room, put the autopsy photos in front of me and left me there with, this, with the suggestion that there was more to the store. So when they came back in, I knew if I went to jail, it wouldn't be a good thing. Not many people survive going to jail as a child, especially women. And I just couldn't, I couldn't even think about going there. I had to be out to fight my daughter at the time, and I gave a second statement. That statement was seven minutes, and I spewed back to them everything they had told me over the course of the investigation of eight months. Because they kept telling me, we know you did it. We know you beat her. I just wanted to have, I wanted to go home. I was told by the officer that if I gave the statement that I would get bail that day, second statement was the statement that sealed my fate. I said things like I possibly may have struck her and I thought at the time the justice system would do its job. And I, we put bail up, and
2: I was allowed to leave. Selling a little or a lot?
1: What Brenda had confessed to specifically was hardly enough to warrant a charge of abuse, let alone murder. Brenda said in her statement that while changing Jenna's diaper in the middle of the night, she may have swung her arms and they may have made contact with Jenna, but she didn't confess to anything near what would have been needed to inflict the kinds of injuries Jenna suffered. Within hours, her lawyers learned of her confession.
4: And I wrote a recantment. I recanted the whole statement. I hadn't had my medication that morning. Um, I told them I just spewed back what they had told me over the eight months. None of it
1: was true. It's the only way I could explain it. The case against Brenda fell apart almost completely at a preliminary hearing, when defense experts testified that there was no way Jenna could have experienced the kinds of injuries she died from when she was in Brenda's care earlier in the day. Her internal bleeding caused by blunt force trauma to her abdomen would have incapacitated her almost as soon as the injury occurred. Brenda had taken her girls out that day and other people who spent time with them said Jenna didn't appear in any way injured. Smith stuck to his timetable during the preliminary hearing, insisting that the injuries could have happened 24 to 28 hours before her death. But within a couple of months, he changed his mind about that timeframe The Crown attorneys had built their case around Smith's testimony, and when he recanted, the case against Brenda collapsed.
4: My second-degree murder charge was withdrawn, citing that medical evidence had shifted dramatically.
1: Many in the police department, as well as in the broader community, were convinced of Brenda's guilt.
4: The community hated me, and I wouldn't speak to the media. I mean, it's hard because if I don't tell my side, and even when I did tell my side, it was still difficult. the, The community didn't want to accept that I wasn't guilty of what they said. And they just, they hated me.
1: It would be almost nine long years before anyone was held responsible for Jenna's murder. In December of 2005, J.D. was arrested and charged with second-degree murder after he confessed to an undercover police officer to sexually assaulting Jenna and killing her. A year later, in December of 2006, he was sentenced to 22 months in jail.
4: One month for every month she was alive, which is appalling. I looked at 25 years, she looked at the same. I started fighting the system. I started writing letters. You know, this is wrong. Something's wrong here. You know, get answers. So I started writing to the ministries to find out answers. I wanted answers. Why didn't he do a rape hit? Why did he follow up on the timing so bad? He had a hair that was found on my daughter. At her autopsy, uh, that the doctors at the hospital witnessed, that they all said, looked like she might have been sexually assaulted.
1: The questions around how Smith handled the hair he removed from Jenna's pubic area have never really been answered in any way that makes sense. Smith maintained that he never thought the hair was evidence; he considered it a contaminant. He said he thought it could have fallen onto Jenna's body during resuscitation efforts or during the autopsy.
4: My lawyer, my lawyer who was my criminal lawyer, had been representing me from day one, all throughout it. He questioned Smith about that hair and Smith wrote it off as
1: fiber. But it wasn't his call to make that leap. He should have logged it as evidence and it should have been treated as evidence. Bizarrely, Smith brought that hair with him to Brenda's preliminary hearing when he testified. He had it in an envelope tucked in his coat pocket. Smith said nothing about the hair in his pocket when Brenda's lawyer asked him specifically about the hair. Years later, after it was revealed that he'd brought this hair to Brenda's preliminary hearing, Smith said he was confused about which hair her lawyer was referring to.
4: What did he do with the hair? Kept it in his pocket. (laughs) At my preliminary trial, kept it in his desk drawer for, oh my gosh, years. Four years. Why? Why'd you bring it with you? What was that for? Like, what's that, your trophy? Like, I don't get this man. Something up with that man. And I don't understand
1: it. I wish I did. Around the time of J.D.'s confession, other cases in which Smith's evidence played a key role were beginning to be exposed as wrongful convictions, including that of William Mullins Johnson, who was sentenced to life in prison in 1995. His niece, Valen was four when she died of what would ultimately be revealed as natural causes, but Smith's autopsy documented what he insisted were signs of sexual assault, where none had actually existed. Mullins Johnson spent 12 years in prison before having his case reviewed after Innocence Canada, a nonprofit that takes on cases suspected of wrongful convictions, took on his case. He was freed in 2005. By the time Brenda and her lawyers were beginning to ask serious questions about Charles Smith's abilities and tactics, Maurice Gagnon had been at it for years and had made solid inroads into pressuring the government on a public inquiry.
3: They were bragging that they had more, they identified more pediatric killings than the rest of Canada put together. Well, sure they did, because none of them were right. The chief coroner called me and told me to back off because I was ruining his career or Smith's career and his and that sort of thing. And uh, I made it quite clear to him that, you know, you guys are ruining your own goddamn careers. I remember telling him, you just picked on the wrong guy this time. And that was the end of that conversation. But he was trying to get me to back off.
1: In 2005, the chief coroner, Dr. James Young, who'd overseen Charles Smith's work for years, resigned. His replacement, Dr. Barry McClellan, ordered a review of 45 child autopsies that Charles Smith had overseen that took place between 1991 and 2002. It found that Smith had made mistakes in 20 cases involving the deaths of children. The review cast doubt on criminal convictions in 13 of those cases. Of those cases, seven were ultimately overturned. Maurice Gagnon and others pressured the Attorney General for a public inquiry.
3: Well, the minister said, oh, well, we'll get a partial public hearing. And then I went at him, no, 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 not partial, we're going to get a public hearing. So we did get the public
1: hearing. In 2007, Ontario's Attorney General announced a public inquiry to review how pediatric forensic pathology was overseen during Smith's career, to look at systemic failures, and to help understand how the coroner's office had failed to catch Smith's mistakes. It was led by Justice Stephen Gouge. The inquiry didn't have any power to affect individual cases, but it did look closely at how Charles Smith conducted himself in investigations. For Leanne Thibault and her dad, Maurice Gagnon, they had studied Smith long enough, but welcomed the chance to hear Smith try to explain himself.
5: I remember my father commenting at one point that it just seemed like he had this track record of being an expert witness in these types of cases, and he wanted his testimony to be the reason why people got uh, found guilty.
3: You know, we come to the conclusion, and I think rightfully so, that Smith chose his victims, and they were always single, girl, single ladies, and they always figured they were dope addicts, and they, were, they got themselves pregnant, And they didn't have any uh, extended family to to protect them or to work with them. So it was easy prey for him.
1: The Gouge inquiry found that Smith actively misled his superiors, made false and misleading statements in court, and exaggerated his expertise in trials. Justice Gouge's recommendations in his final report provided a roadmap of sorts for the government to introduce sweeping changes to the office of the coroner and how pediatric forensic pathology was licensed and practiced. At the inquiry, Smith apologized to Leanne as well as Brenda.
5: His apology landed on deaf ears. I knew it wasn't legitimate. Uh, He was just doing what the lawyers told him to do. So I still think to that day he felt validated in everything that he did but he was smart enough to plead incompetence uh, so that there would be no crim- criminal ramifications. It was a
4: scripted apology. Because he did the same for everybody. And that's where it hurt. Like, you destroyed my life. You ripped my family apart. My immediate family was ripped apart. My brothers and sisters didn't know if I was guilty or not, my mother died before the case was ever really resolved. My dad died before the during the recommendations of the inquiry. Like you can't
1: replace that. Charles Smith, Chief Coroner James Young, and Deputy Chief Coroner Jim Cairns all ultimately lost their licenses to practice medicine. Two years after Justice Gouge had compiled his recommendations, the Ontario government announced compensation for families affected by Smith's mistakes. Individuals were entitled to a maximum of $250,000 each. A child of someone wrongfully accused who was removed from the family home as a result were entitled to a maximum of $25,000. As well, family members affected by a relative's involvement in the criminal justice system were entitled to up to $12,500. Individuals wrongly accused were also entitled to have their legal costs reimbursed.
4: President, what happened to him? Don't do it again. Got his license revoked. Are you kidding me? He didn't go to jail. He commits perjury, and not only my case, many others. But what happens? Nothing. Like he sat with the hair in his pocket and was questioned about it. That's perjury. Nope. Not in this country, it's not. Wow, things you can get away with when you have authority.
3: I was wondering where the hell is he now? Is he pumping gas or you know, shoveling driveways. I don't know what he's doing. And I don't even know where he is, and I don't care. But you got to remember that as far as I'm concerned, Charles Smith was uh, an aberration and, you know, like a tornado. If a tornado comes through and destroys my house. I'm not going to spend the rest of my life hating the tornado. It's just an aberration of nature. And so was Smith. And he's gone, and I'm not going to worry about him. It takes too much effort to hate someone.
1: For Leanne and Brenda, their mistrust of police and the justice system has not diminished over time.
5: It's definitely made me skeptical. Uh, it has given me no faith in our, uh, police services. And at, at times I feel a little bit, uh, sad for that because I just think of for example, my childhood and being told by my parents, if you're ever somewhere and you're, in, you know, you're in trouble, find a police officer; they'll help you. I couldn't tell that to my children, because I don't feel that way. I am very uh, suspicious of police, and I don't afford them any uh, respect, really, because of the way I was treated.
4: I was raised that when a police officer lays a charge, a person's guilty because they've done their job. My children were taught very different, obviously. They respect the law, always will, but do they respect an officer? That's their call. Can I blame them if they don't? Not really, because so much about the police now, they're not all on the up and up. So, I mean, it's hard. My kids will always, always know that something went wrong, and terribly, terribly wrong, and that I had nothing to do with their sister's death, nothing to do with the aftermath. The aftermath lays at the heels
1: of the justice system. A very special thank you to Leanne Thibault, Morris Gagnon, and Brenda Wadby for sharing their stories, as well as John Chipman, whose book Death in the Family features in-depth reporting on these families and others who were deeply harmed by the work of Charles Smith. It's published by Doubleday Canada.
2: Next time on Story Hunter Podcasts, Tina Pitaway brings us the story of the Mother Risk Lab. For years, it made millions of dollars selling its hair testing services to children's aid societies across Canada, claiming to be able to tell whether a parent was abusing drugs or alcohol.
4: I never had a chance because of the the hair testing. Because of these hair testings, the courts just said you must be using because these tests are accurate. And I said, but, but that's not that's not the truth. This, these are not truthful. And I'm, I'm telling you that I was not using.
2: For more than two decades, Mother Risk claimed to be able to determine, through its hair testing, patterns of drug abuse over time.
5: So you ended up sort of with a diary of, of use. And it was really... Um, sold as as exact science. Uh, and that is what child protection agencies, uh, and in some cases, the Crown, paid for.
2: Their results were used in thousands of child protection cases, routinely in situations where parents face losing their children forever.
5: You know, a child being taken away forever from their family as, as the child protection equivalent of capital punishment as a sentence. I didn't know
4: how to function without them. And I begged them, like I begged them to, Tell me what I needed to do to get them back.
2: But the laboratory staff weren't trained in handling forensic evidence. And, unbeknownst to those paying for the test, the tests themselves were junk.
5: We see sort of history repeating here where there are individuals who are testifying on forensic evidence who are not not trained um, in, in preparing that evidence or in testifying on it.
2: Dozens of families were ripped apart, permanently. In cases where these tests were the deciding factor in judgments.
0: The police didn't pick up on it. Prosecutors didn't pick up on it. And defense lawyers didn't pick up on it. And should have.
2: Mother Risk. Rogue Lab. Next time on Story Hunter Podcasts.
0: This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Tina Pittaway. Executive producer is Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts.
2: and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365 day returns.
0: And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening.